everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Shiloh. I am here as always with Dr. Scott. Hey, everybody. How are you? Hello. Hello. It's June. We are back and we have something very exciting for you today. We're, you know, our, our LA Vintage series did so well that we thought we might set our sights on a vintage serial killer case in Austin, Texas, where CrimeCon was last year. Um, I'm sure I had a wonderful time because <laughs> we are recording this beforehand. <laughs> last year, you mean this year, but you know, you're getting your time traveling a little mixed up, right? Oh my gosh, where am I? What day is it? What's happening? These three day um, weekends, yeah. Right, right. Uh, but yes, I'm sure that I had a blast and um, I, I'm really looking forward to exploring the city. I'm taking my family with me, spending a little extra time. Wish that my other my other other half, Dr. Scott, was going to be there. I, I told someone the other day, Scott, that uh, I have two husbands, my regular husband and my podcast husband. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be a podcast husband as long as I don't have to do all that other stuff that your husband has to do. <laughs> all that other stuff. All that other stuff. <laughs> no, it's great. This is a great partnership. It's a great friendship. It's it's very interesting how we work. Like, I think the only time I would think, and I could be, you can correct me, I might be wrong. I would think the only time we've had any conflict is like, if I've forgotten something, which happens, and you have to go, no, I sent you that note, it's in the Google Drive, go do it. Like, oh, okay, got it. But like, as far as like tossing ideas and directives and what we want, we're almost always we're always on the same page. It's kind of crazy. Oh my gosh, that's not even conflict. I was like, oh my God, what is he going to say? There, yeah, there isn't. There isn't kind of conflict. It's kind of crazy. It's we great. Are not in therapy, we are not in couples therapy yet. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you blank, I feel blank. Oh my God. Could you imagine that poor therapist? <laughs> oh, no. We'd, anyway, be, we'd, yeah. we'd, be a, we'd be a dream couple for therapists. Really? Yeah, uh, I think okay. so. Therapy couples goals. We'll get there one day, probably. Right. So this is kind of cool. I mean, like, obviously, we we do crimes from all over the world and, and the psych issues that are involved in this. But this one is drilling down into a particular case in uh, the Austin area that is definitely vintage. This is probably about as far back in history as we've gone. And it's, you know... I think we're you're setting the tone for us to be prepared even for next year for CrimeCon to have a Vegas case Ooh, we can choose. Like yeah. Plenty to choose from there. Yeah. And I will miss you. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be able to go, but I have a bunch of family stuff that I have to take care of. And I also can't wait to see my family. It's going to be the first time I've seen my family in the longest period of time that I've ever gone, not visiting home. So this you is a big deal. Yeah. yeah, it was a big deal. So you will be in the South and um, we're going to take you to the South uh, Tex in Texas today. And we're going to be talking about the servant girl murders, also known as the servant girl annihilator murders or the Austin Axe murders or the Texas servant girl murders. It has a lot of names and we are going to do something. I don't know, interactive here. We're we're going to look at each murder and then we're going to see if we can link them as a series or not because spoiler these crimes are actually unsolved. 
still. Yes, so, there, there are theories as to who it is, but it yes. was never determined. And there's some wild theories too. <laughs> um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about crime linkage. And then Dr. Scott's going to talk about Austin at that time because we really loved doing that when we did our LA series because it added so much texture to really taking you back to this time period and what was going on with folks and what what the temperature was like in the area when these vicious crimes were happening. And then I'll lay out each crime and I'm going to prompt you, Scott and the audience, for some initial thoughts. And then we're going to talk about linkage and see what we come up with at the end. Does that sound like a good idea? Yes. Okay. So trigger warnings here, kind of uh, the runs the gamut, violent homicide, child murder, sexual assault, some gruesome details that we are going to talk about because it may or may not contribute to crime linkage. And if you want further information and a good read on this, I would suggest the book, The Midnight Assassin, Panic Scandal and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. And that's all about these murders. I do love how people keep claiming the title for some alleged perpetrator as America's first serial killer, as if we can know, right? Right. Because how many times have we heard that in the cases we've read? So many, and it's been debunked all over the place. Like, absolutely, absolutely. But it's a great title. It's it'll it's an attention grabber, right? No, totally, totally. And we'll see. I mean, I don't know if this fits the bill, but that's what we're going to explore today. So let's talk about crime linkage. It is essentially defined as the process of linking two or more crimes together on the basis of the crime scene behavior exhibited by an offender. So we are not talking about forensic evidence here. That is someone else's realm, not ours, but definitely can link crimes. But we want to look at the behavior. And this is really under the big umbrella of investigative psychology, which is akin to offender profiling. So we get asked about profiling a lot. And that would specifically be inferring characteristics of an offender from the actions left at the crime scene. So the purpose of that is to prioritize suspects for law enforcement to look at and essentially has two components, behavioral consistency and behavioral distinctiveness. And just as a reminder, as we've talked about before, in the entities within the U.S. that do do use profilers, profiling is a skill that is taught based on ever-emerging science. You don't have to be a psychologist to be a profiler. It certainly would not be a bad thing because an understanding of behaviors. But once again, it's a technique that's taught that's based on a rubric of looking for certain characteristics that doesn't require, you know, eight years of grad school to get there. And some of the best profilers had no background in psychology at all. Exactly. So when we're talking about behavioral consistency and distinctiveness, Basically, what we're saying is that an offender's behavior has to be similar enough that it can be recognized across a series of crimes and distinctive enough that it can be distinguished from other offenders' behavior. So that's the trick. That's the tricky part. There is empirical support for the theories of behavioral consistency and distinctiveness. And this often goes with the caveat that... These theories don't hold for all offenders. And what this totally reminds me of, and I know I've said this a million times 
on this podcast is what I learned from FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood in his trainings. There are no absolutes. Right. And I heard that from him very early when I was very young. And I look at all empirical data through that lens. Just, and I, I'm all about the data and I'm all about the numbers and really leaning towards what that tells us is most likely, but it, it cannot account for absolutely everything. And there's always going to be outliers. So when we talk about linkage, we are talking about behavioral consistency piece of it and trying to link crimes and by default, trying to link the offender to multiple crimes. Even though there's now more evidence-based research to support crime linkage and other areas of investigative psychology, we still have to look at the core questions here. Is this a useful tool or not? Are offenders consistent? So there's support to the practice of investigative psychology. But when we look at serial offenders, they're all over the map. There's research from 2005 that shows Actually, they're not very consistent. So this this is tough. This is a very tricky practice. And I love that real practitioners in this area are leaning more towards what is the data telling us rather than just going sort of off the cuff for, you know, what they have a gut feeling for. And I am all right. about leaning towards evidence-based practices. So one of the things that it sounds like you're saying then, because I think you're you're examining an area that I did not have a much of familiarity in. So they're saying that you're always looking at the emerging data, looking at the emerging science, and also recognizing that someone may be, what would you say, evolving or maturing or changing or refining what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. no, like Hannibal Lecter, if we were to say he was a real person, didn't start off ex exquisitely filleting someone's brain for dinner, like he built up to it. So it's right. kind of the same thing here. This person's going to develop what they're doing. And they're at the beginning, they might make mistakes or they might like, oh, I don't like arranging the bodies this way. So I'll do it that way. I don't know. You know I'm just yeah, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. And if we look at it like, hey, let's just look at the field of psychology altogether, right? Human behavior is an incredibly complex thing, especially when you're trying to predict it or trying to put together the most likely scenario of how someone is going to act. It is very, very difficult. And I think we can translate that to this to even a, a bigger extent, because we're talking about a very small population, people who are committing these types of crimes. I mean, crime linkage can be used in robberies and assaults and all times of crimes. It doesn't just have to has to be serial murder or sexual um, crimes. But Yes, their offenders are likely to experiment in the beginning. They don't really know what they're doing. And then they might mature. They might change their behaviors over time based on what they're learning and what happens because so much of it is fantasy driven, but then they have to get out there and do the real thing. And it's probably not going to go exactly the way that they planned or lived up to their expectations or make them feel the way that they thought they were going to feel. So there's some, some tweaking that has to go on there. So let's talk about the process of kind of maybe how a crime analyst, I'm just going to say analyst rather than profiler, would do crime linkage. So the first step, the analyst needs to basically compose a list of behaviors exhibited by the perpetrator from gathering data at the crime scenes. This is not going to be necessarily something that, you know, is caught on camera. You are having to infer already right off the bat 
what's going on here. So this might be related directly to the victim. This might be something in the pre-planning stages, like cutting a telephone cord to the house, the, the service off. So there's somebody can't call for help. This can be a lot of different things, but basically let's start compiling a list of behaviors and then really taking a look at those behaviors. Okay. What behaviors are spontaneous? Maybe this isn't really that indicative of the person's drive or motivations because maybe it was just a reaction to the situation or a reaction to the victim in the moment. And then you have to sort of parse out things that are super common for that type of crime. And then the things that are way too specific and one-offs. You kind of want that sweet spot of what's left in the middle. And Dr. Gabrielle Salfati out of John Jay College, she talks about this, this section being called differentiation. You know, it's the part that you really want to hone in on. What makes it different enough from other offenders but not so wacky and out there that it's sort of tripping us up and maybe isn't relevant at all. So so looking at this the sweet spot of, of differentiation. Does that make sense? I, I think I see where you're going with it, but do you have an example? If you talk about like looking at what would be a, cons- a common crime, like um, murder of a particular demographic, right? So we're looking well, at something that's specific to that type of crime. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I'm sorry, this is like the only example that's coming to my mind. So if if we talk about robbery, maybe most people who are committing robberies wear ski masks. I don't know okay. if that's, I'm just using it as an example, because what they want to hide their identity, right. they want something that's easy to put on and off. It's, it's kind of something that's just done some sort of facial covering. So you want to rule that out because that's not going to help you. That's going to link a gazillion robberies that happen. Right. In so that's like, okay, let me take that off the table. And and it's really looking at the research, like what are the commonalities in the research showing? So if we were to, to look at all these traits, what's what's coming up most common? And then if somebody does something during a robbery that is maybe not, maybe doesn't have to do necessarily with the stealing of the item because that's robbery right you're you're personally you're it's theft but you're doing it against a person you're not just going into an empty home so there's a victim there maybe there's a little extra violence than what needs to be done just to perpetrate that theft that would be something that you might want to hone in on because that's different and then let's say they like to spray paint their moniker on the outside that could link the crime but is it is it important to the drive is it important to the the motive of why they're happening you probably want to look at like okay why are they going the extra mile to violate this person so much you want to look at the stuff in the middle okay so that's called differentiation it's it's really just kind of okay of all these behaviors that i now have a list on what am i going to key in on and maybe this will tighten up a little bit when we look at our case today okay so, so let me, do you think in the case of robbery, like an in-home robbery, like if a person was a little more violent and then they take time to get a snack out of the refrigerator? I mean, that's pretty broad though, right? Is that more broad than the sweet spot you're talking about? No, I I, I think the sweet spot of differentiation and then if you're treading into the territory of like a signature Got it. Um, okay. That's you know, different. It, it, right. Yeah. So it could be a one-off. Maybe that guy was hungry that day and he hadn't eaten. So he got something out of the fridge to take with him. 
might not be terribly important and he might not repeat it on the next one. But if it's like the Golden State Killer, where he is in between assaults of the same person is sitting down and eating a bowl of Cheerios and then goes back to assaulting the person that might be in that differentiation sweet spot. Got it. Attention to. So yeah, good. Determining MO, modus modus operandi. Um, I'm sure this is pretty familiar to a lot of our listeners, but again, looking at what behaviors are MO driven, what needs to be done to commit the crime? Does there need to be some control over the victim? If you're going to perform a robbery, a home invasion, like you're saying, do you need to tie that person up and control them? Probably, right? Like you don't want them using the phone. You don't want them trying to stop you physically. You don't want them running away. You're doing just what needs to be done to perpetrate that crime and then get in and get out. You also want to determine then, like we just said, what is ritualistic behavior, sometimes called signature behavior, but most of the literature says ritualistic. So what the offender chooses to do above and beyond the MO. This is something that we look at in sexual offenses. It's actually part of risk assessment with some of the newer assessment tools is what amount of violence was used to perpetrate the crime and what was above and beyond? What was more than that? Why was there damage to the person's face and violence when that had really nothing to do with maybe controlling her for the means of a a sexual assault? What is that about? That's giving us more information about the person's motives. But I I don't want to get too much into motives because we really just want to kind of look at behavior here in the clear definition of criminal linkage. Because again, we're sort of getting, when we talk about motives, we're sort of getting into that um, big umbrella of investigative psychology where we just have our, our blinders on for behaviors today. The analyst's next task is could be to search for other crimes that have those similar behaviors. So, you know, sometimes it isn't like, oh, I have this string of 10 sexual assaults. Maybe you have a couple, but maybe you need to widen your search and say, okay, now that I know that these two or three seem to have some similar behaviors, let me start expanding out and start looking at the data, the information in this city, cities over that might have these similar behaviors. So that would be a a cross-reference to do. And then also an important stage in this process is to consider the base rates for those types of behaviors. So again, that's sort of differentiating between those ones that are really common and ones that aren't. And if you find in the, the statistics that the base rates are pretty common, then it might not be terribly meaningful to you as, as an analyst trying to link these crimes together. And then after you've done all this, finally, in your opinion, you have to decide whether it's probable that the same offender committed these crimes that you're analyzing or not. Can they be ruled out? And it's tricky. I mean, this is not, you know, this is definitely a, a science and an art. That's and a big responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. Yeah. Huge. And I think this is why throughout the years, I mean, certainly since I was an undergrad many moons ago, that, you know, real academics had kind of turned real academics. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but academics, fake academics. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we've covered some of those. Right. Um, but academics kind of turn their nose up at this a little bit. But it really, investigative psychology has only been around since 1990. You know, this is new. And so I would expect that there would be pushback. 
But I'm so happy to hear at this point that there is research gaining momentum behind it. So to to say that, yes, there's efficacy to it, it, it does lead to results. Still just a tool, of course, but this is something, this is something we can put our, our money and our research and our effort behind. So after, you know, you have this big job of really looking at whether or not you decide these are linked, then that's when recommendations would be made or working in concert with law enforcement about, you know, maybe the next step of looking at generating a profile on this person. You know, I think it's interesting to look at some differences to consider when you're looking at trying to link crimes. And I just want to go through, you know, maybe this will help kind of bring it to life a little bit more. But like if you have a rape victim, or maybe even a couple in a series or in in some that you think are a series, and and these rape victims are gagged, But then you have one where the rape victim is bound to a chair. Are those part of the same series? You know, it's it's looking a little deeper into, well, what is that behavior about? They're not exactly the same, but are they both about controlling the victim? And could it be evolution? Could it be lessons learned? I think all of that has to be considered and knowledge of different types of offenders is going to be really important. So knowing that there are different types of rapists, you know, typology. So like way back in 1990, when Cantor and Heritage said, okay, there's a controlling type of rapist and the behavior is going to be just controlling the victim and getting the deed done. And then there is the pseudo intimate type of rapist. So he's not going to bind her or try to control her because he thinks he's on a date. He thinks he's in a relationship with her. So he might caress her, kiss her, may even give her a ride home or help her get dressed at the end of the assault because there's a different typology there. There's a different mindset. There's a different motive. And it seems like those are great examples because they're they're so broadly different. And it would seem that if you're able to get any information from the victims in comparing two people that were perpetrated upon, but they were gagged, not bound versus a victim who was bound and gagged. If they had any additional information about how the person acted, that seems like that'd be like a a big behavioral observation. That's going to help tell how to steer this. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's great information to have, whether you get to speak to the victim themselves, if you're like a law enforcement officer doing this kind of work, or if you're reading through victim statements. Yeah, sure. I I also like this example that uh, Dr. Salfati gives, where she says, you know, you can have different crimes that you're looking at, you can have an assault, a rape, another rape, and then maybe a sexual homicide. And I think the first thing that, that, you know, comes up for us, especially true crime aficionados is like, oh, well, those could totally be linked, but it could be escalation. It doesn't have to be the same exact crime. Those are those are legal terms, assault, rape, homicide. But if we really break it down, they're all sexual assaults, you know, so you're you're finding that consistency that we we're talking about. Plus, you know, maybe some development, maybe some change in the behavior and definitely escalation. But the bottom line to criminal linkage is that you need to understand the trajectory when you're looking at these different crimes happening over and over again. 
and you have to look at the series as a whole. So you have to kind of step back and look at the forest and not just the trees, but it's definitely, um, yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's a lot of responsibility because this is not just something you can pick up and start doing. There's, there's a lot of learning and practice and application that needs to be done before diving into something like this professionally, at least. That is really fascinating in the, and it just sort of brings to light the examples I had working as a law enforcement psych with uh, non-sworn employees of a law enforcement agency that worked as analysts and their ability, because I, I had no idea exactly what that meant. And the analysts using computer data from connecting an individual's patterns of crimes They'd be able to tell us like, like, look, every time this guy robs somebody, it's always between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And it's always near a convenience store. And here it is all over this area of the county, but it's always at a convenience store at this time, you know, and they can create these yeah. patterns. I find that fascinating then, you know, just looking oh, yeah. at all that data that they have. And clearly we're talking about also, this is all computer model because there's these records they can clearly pull from, which is really only existing in the last few years. This is we law enforcement would not have been able to do that type of, that type of um, synthesis of knowledge in, you know, a hundred years ago, that right. just wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. So usually it's now where you have a crime analyst, which is a civilian generally working alongside a detective bureau. So, hey, we have these happening. Can you run these algorithms, see what's going on? And yeah, there's so many different databases that you can plug in these different points and details from crimes. And it's then assisting the investigation for the detectives. Right. So you picked a particular case that happens in Austin, in Texas. And for I mean, clearly the people that are here in the U.S. listening to this understand that Texas is a, they're, they're, the way Texas advertises themselves during tourist times is Texas is a whole other country because Texas really is a very strong individualistic state identity. And I, I have some wonderful, wonderful friends from Texas who kind of laugh about growing up with that pressure on you to like that your state is different from every other state. And it's like Texas first, then the U.S. And wow. but there's historical stuff set for that, because at one time, Texas being such a long, a large land area was looking to become its own independent country state at one time. And, you know, certainly in the current political discussions, there are several states that are still talking about that, which is a whole other conversation that we won't go into because why bother? But anyway. It's a beautiful state. It's absolutely huge. Driving through, it takes a really long time. And one of the things that's actually very specific about Austin itself and the surrounding area is that the director, John Lee Hancock, of the remake of The Alamo was really specific about this, about when he was remaking it. He didn't want the dry, old, dusty Western that had been done previously, where you saw The Alamo basically in a desert surrounded by tumbleweeds and rocks and dirt. He's, you know, his understanding was like, no, we need our audience to understand why this land was so important to everybody involved, to the Native Americans, to the settlers, to the citizens, to the Spanish. It was 
like this oasis, like there was a water supply, it was very fertile ground, it could support crops, it could support cattle, it was a strategic point for military forces. So this whole area really has a rich, rich history of being a pivotal point, as well as a pivotal political point in Texas history. And it was originally inhabited by immigrants from Germany, Sweden, and Mexico. And those were like the big immigrants coming to the center of the country in the 1830s. And in 1837, those immigrants founded a village that they called Waterloo. But back only two years later in 1839, they renamed it Austin after John Austin, who was a very big figure at the time. And it would serve as the capital of the Republic of Texas. So at that time, you know, this was... Um, there was not a lot of fancy uh, building materials. People were just kind of coming and being settlers. And it was all types of money coming in, but they didn't have the infrastructure and the resources to build sort of what were accepted Western buildings. So a lot of people were living in, in thatched roof or moss roof log cabins for quite a while. And at that time, the biggest threats were the interactions they had with the, the local uh, Native American populations. And the, one of the biggest threats that the settlers felt was the Karankawas tribe. They felt that they were the most uh, troublesome, and there was a lot of violence between the settlers and the Karankawa. Karankawa were pissed off because they had really been screwed over by the Spanish, and there was a, an ongoing tension, rising of tensions for almost 100 years. And this is a whole Shocker. other conversation. What's that? Big shocker there. I know. Well, that's a whole other conversation. And like, even in gathering this information, they, they, the way they frame it as like how violent the car and cars were, it's like, well, no shit. They stole their land and they killed them without remorse for years. And you're going to reframe it as like, oh yes, they were violent. They even tried to frame a lot of the native American tribes as cannibals. Because, of course, the history was being written by the white settlers. So uh, there was a lot of skirmishes, a lot of difficulties with the Karankawas and a couple of other tribes, the Tonkawa and the Comanches as well. But in 1840, Austin was finally incorporated with 856 residents. And then they wanted, when there was a Mexican invasion a little bit later, they wanted to move the capital to Houston. But the, the citizens that were there was like, no, you're not moving the capital away from us. And they hid all of the documents. So they hid all the archives, all the signed documents, all the legal work, forcing it to return in 1845 to Austin. So again, very much an identity issue of being so linked to the place where you are and the importance of where you are. In the late 1840s, a huge number of German immigrants came, and which is very significant because the immigrant culture of the Germans really had a huge effect on the development of the Western culture as well. So That's something very important to remember as we're um, telling the story. And then in the 1870s, there was a second surge in construction that came to Austin because there was now the Transcontinental Railroad. And that really changed the whole country because railroads were connecting all of the coasts, all of the cities, and it was bringing technology and the latest sciences and arts to basically everywhere. You know, every little stop had its own theater, which was a big deal. And that if you wanted to be a doctor, there was always going to be a city that was on a train route that would need a doctor. So that was really a big deal. And of course, as any city grows, what do you think, what profession is going to grow along with it, Dr. Shiloh? Sex Shiloh? work. 
work. Sex work. The first ward was a neighborhood that quickly became known as Guy Town or the Jungles. I will not be calling it the Jungles because I'm not sure where they were coming up with that. But Guy Town as to indicate that most men would find most of their recreation in this area. Basically, it was Austin's red light district. Recreation. Yes. Rest and recreation. R&R. So between 1870 and 1913 is what we consider to be the specific span of years that we now consider in, the, in American history to be the quote unquote Old West. And so during this time in Austin, as it's growing rapidly, especially in technology, because electricity is starting to be more ubiquitous and street lights and lots of different things, there are newer technologies that are supplanting older technologies and there's a lot of money here as well. So Guy Town's Southern Edge ran along the banks of the Colorado River northward to what is now 4th or 5th Street, and then east to west from Congress Avenue to Guadalupe. It was, a, it was quite a significant section, and it was filled with a lot of businesses, not just brothels. I mean, there was a, it was a diverse community. That's very important in our story today to understand that at that time, being far away from the already established metropolitan areas, that diverse communities lived a little bit more in cohesion with each other than they did maybe in the deep south or certainly in the, you know, the northeast part of the U.S., the, those colonies. Sure. Well, and it's it's still so small by standards of that time that if they are still utilizing blacks as servants, then they are going to be integrated and closer because as you'll see in our stories, many of the servants are living with the families. Exactly. Yes. So a little bit more of a diverse and integrated population, but as with any stressor, this crime that we're going to be describing, it quickly unravels the integration that was there. And partially, at least because the first victims were in Guy Town. So there was not only the brothels or the sex work establishments, but there were also saloons, gambling and dance halls. And it was really important to note that these brothels were the ladies of the evening, as they were called. They were not necessarily segregated. So you would have brothels that had women that were white, black, Asian, you know, performing their duties there or doing their sex work. And that was something quite unusual as compared to, like I said, the other established metropolitan areas in the Northeast and certainly those in the South. So the sex work industry, as well as the others, were really strongly supported by a regular influx of rural workers who would come into town from farms and ranches to get some R&R in whatever way that they could afford. So if they can afford only a little bit, they go to the cheaper brothels and the, the cheaper saloons. And But if they've got more money, you know, there's a whole wide spectrum that they could choose from. However, that did cause, as Austin was growing, that did cause more and more conflict because the richer people coming in to get their needs met didn't want to be hanging out with what they considered to be people that were on the social rungs much lower than them. But that happened because being the capital of the state, and which requires regular political meetings and conventions, those politicians coming in with a lot of backroom deals and political machinations, they wanted to have access to the brothels and the entertaining parts of Guy's Town 
especially when the state legislature was in session. So over the years, Guy Town became not only the focal point for scandal and noise and loud music, but then when today's crime, the annihilator crimes started, it became the place where it was known that most murders were committed. So there were crimes of violence that were happening around that time as well that tended to kind of fade off after the annihilator stopped taking his victims. So while it was an area of of ill repute, um, they were actually ringed by very successful and legitimate businesses because, of course, every business has to get its supplies somewhere. So there was a lot of economy being generated by this particular area. But eventually... All good things must come to an end, as must all moderate and bad things. At this, this was really getting to the end of the period of what I was talking about is the uh, the period that was considered the Old West, where many red light districts started to fade away as the communities grew, and they started getting influxes from those other established communities, like the Northeast and the South. People would start to migrate out, and they brought with them their own cultural mores and standards. And they started enacting legislation against what they considered, well, I guess really what at that time would have been considered real vices. So this was generally led by religious leaders and women's groups. And there's a lot that can be said about like disrespecting sex work. Certainly, we're trying to have a better conversation about that today. But at this time, it was really considered, you know, really considered illegal. And you got away with it because the state was looking the other way. But now that there's attention on it and churches are growing, they started slowly enacting these legislations to cut those businesses off. Now, part of it, the temperance movement that started getting really strong with women at the time was really based on actually sort of an effort to push against domestic violence as well, because alcoholism was very severe at this time when it was really the only outlet for a lot of people. So just developing severe alcoholism, increases in domestic violence and intimate partner violence, which we'll never actually know what the stats are because we don't have records going that far back. But we do know that many of the women involved in the temperance movement were motivated by that actual fact. So that hopefully paints a picture. It's like there was a lot of muddy roads to begin with and things started you know, getting a little fancier and more upscale as the trains brought in fancier equipment and better science and better building materials. But Guystown and the red light district of Austin was an important part of the development of the city at that time. Definitely. And I I don't think I've ever really given too much mindful thought about the term that we use, the Wild West. It's kind of means that anything goes, right? Because we can, we attribute that to, oh, well, you know, this part of the city last night was like the Wild West, maybe because crime was out of control. But if you really stop and think that when these cities were in their infancy and or religious influences and laws weren't developed yet that it was sort of anything goes and there was a definite time period around that i thank you for giving us the dates because i never really thought about when did the wild west start and when did it end and i think it's yeah i was just gonna say i think it's also interesting to look at it sort of from this more three-dimensional view of you know sometimes when it's the wild west and i'm not a, i'm not a libertarian by any means but like things take care of themselves 
because people have to take care of themselves. So like there are some people that probably disappeared that were committing mm-hmm. crimes, but there were probably also some really good people or women who were sexually assaulted and nothing was ever done because there's no system in place. Right. But when we think about now, like what is the frontier now? What is the wild West? And we like, immediately I go to it's Alaska, right? Like it's those oh, States. I was thinking it's the internet. <laughs> well, true. That's true too. But I mean, physically, if you were to go to a location, Like that would be someplace that's so far removed from a lot of law enforcement. It's where a lot of people go to disappear, Mm -hmm. you know, and the Wild West also was just there was so much opportunity, the idea that you could go and register huge amounts of land if you wanted to be a farmer, you know, if you were hard enough working and had a, a system that would support you, then you could kind of make your future. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So our murders that we're going to talk about today happen smack dab in that time period you were talking about between 1884 and 1885, just in basically 12 months, a year's period. And this was, just to put it in context, three years before Jack the Ripper was doing his thing over in London. And six years before H.H. Holmes. So I think that helps anchor it a little bit for folks. We're going to talk about eight murders that took place over this the course of this year in Austin. Seven of them women, one of them uh, male, either boyfriend or husband of woman of the women attacked. But what I'm going to do is talk about each one. And then Scott, I'm going to have you kind of play role of audience a bit and just tell me what sticks out to you behaviorally. What are you starting to look at? What are you starting to see? Okay. So the first murder happens on December 30th, 1884. And this crime was perpetrated against Molly Smith. She was a 25 year old cook and lived in a room with her some reports say boyfriend, some reports say husband, and they both cook and cooked and cleaned for a wealthy family and were on the same property. In the middle of the night, her boyfriend is knocked out, comes to, gets up, looks in the mirror, and he has a deep gash in his face. He then follows this trail of blood, which leads from their room outside and finds Molly dead in a open space from across the house. I, I saw it on a map and it kind of looks like maybe it was like an open field at that time, no structures there. But essentially she was murdered in her bed because the blood sheets are soaked. The axe that was used to perpetrate the crime is left in their room and she has wounds to her head, her body, and appears that she's sexually assaulted. So again, the Molly and her boyfriend were a black couple. They were servants. They were cooks and and they cleaned for this family. So 
with what I've mentioned so far, and again, this is a very long time ago. There's not a ton of information on every single one of these crimes, but what is jumping out to you, Dr. Scott, about what, what we have here? Okay, so just off the top of my head, it seems significant that the boyfriend slash husband was knocked out with, but not just knocked out. I mean, that's like, uh, it was a, using a, a an axe. Did he mean to kill him or just knock him out so that he could perpetrate his crime? We don't know, but that's pretty significant. It's also sure. significant that the body was dragged outside. Like that doesn't right. make Why? any sense. Why you've already knocked out the boyfriend. Why? Would you not stay inside? Was that was that somewhat precautionary on the perpetrator's part? Thinking, well, I have, I'll be able to run away faster if I'm not caught inside a house. Could mm, be, I don't know. Okay. But most significant is servants, people of color working for white people, but also being in their house. That just seems like a big deal to me. Like, the the pers- perspective of race seems very significant here. I don't know what it means, but it seems significant. So something about the victimology there is right. something's going off for you. Sure. And there's also and like, also- if you're going to knock somebody out, there's ways of knocking them out without an axe. Like you don't take the axe blade, you take the axe butt and conk them on the head. So there's something going on there that seems that kind of attacks to the head and face are very personal and angry. Uh, yeah, that is typically that's what we see. I also what stands out to me and, and you kind of touched on it is just the brazen nature, because yes. you're not attacking a single person living alone. This is someone who's in bed with someone else and living within the property or the home of even, you know, more, ex- more family. So. Yeah. Okay. Off to a good start here. Five months elapse. And on May 8, 1885, Eliza Shelley, a 30 year old cook for a state legislator and his family is attacked and killed. Somebody breaks into her room and she shares this room with her three young children who are witness to this murder. She is hit with a sharp instrument. Uh, Didn't say that it was exactly an axe, but it could have been. Again, forensics are fuzzy from back then. We don't have great detailed information, but all accounts say, yeah, could have been an axe. She has a big wound over her right eye. After she's attacked in the bedroom, she is then dragged out of bed and out of the room And it turns out that her employer actually finds her outside her cabin. The sheets are bloodstained again. Again, this suggests that she was attacked in her bed during sleep in the middle of the night. And her of her children, her eight-year-old son recalls seeing a single man entering the cabin. I mean, you can imagine the trauma that's there for those kiddos. That was the only information that I saw that they were able to get out of them. But eight years old and possibly younger, I can't imagine that they had a lot of information to offer. It must have been just a horrific, horrific experience. So what what's jumping out to you about this one? Again, a person of color, servant position, working for not necessarily money, but someone who's a position of state legislator. So there's definitely a hierarchy there. 
going after the servant person, being so disinhibited and brazen, as your your word was, to go into the home in front of children, in front of witnesses, and not be concerned that there are witnesses there. And there's no indication that kids were assaulted, right? That we know of. Not not in this case, no. Okay. So then again, another head wound, another, uh, uh, you know, uh, wounding to the head, significant wounding to the head with a sharp object. So we don't know if it's an ax or a knife, but that's pretty significant. And then dragging the person out of the house again. What is that about? Yeah. yeah. You know, the first one we had kind of this, this open space, and then we have, um, next to a cabin or structure on the property where she can be found more easily. I don't know. I, I, I still don't know what that's about, but there, uh, so far that is something that doesn't need to be done to perpetrate this crime. It's above and beyond like we were talking about before. So May 23rd, 1885, just a matter of days really after Eliza's death, Irene Cross, who is a 33-year-old Black woman working as a servant, she actually shared a room with her nephew. I don't have the age of the nephew. Sounded like maybe he was adolescent. But this time the knife is a, or this time the weapon is a knife. And she is stabbed while in her bed. Her head is so damaged that one newspaper reporter who was witness to the body showed up on the scene, said it looked like as if she had been scalped. It was really, really horrific and attacked so severely with the knife in one of her arms that it was almost completely detached from her body. Now, there is not a ton of information on Irene's murder and not sure if she was dragged from her room, but I'm going to say no, because we don't know for sure. But without that piece that we're keyed in on so much, what else behaviorally looks interesting in this one? The only thing, well, interesting, it's all very interesting. I don't know of like uh, commonality with the previous ones, but again, another attack a violent attack to the face and head. Also, a disinhibition against committing the crime in the presence of another, whether it's a sleeping child or a sleeping adult. The detachment, like, I, you know, in, once again, we're peering into the past with such foggy lenses of a reporter saying it looked like the person had been scalped. Was that a dig at possibly trying to frame a Native American as the perpetrator? Right. We don't. I thought is, that a, was, is that a key word that they're trying to use? And then, you know, a knife was the weapon this time with one of her arms almost detached from the body. So once again, like I said, we don't know, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense because detaching a limb from a body takes a lot of work, depending on what tools you have available at the time. If I was going to really stretch it is we had been talking about the Karantawa uh, Indians had been accused of being cannibals. I know that's a, a stretch, but this one almost feels like it's a, a dog whistle and mm. it might not be, it might not be linked to the first two, or it might be, maybe the person's developing. It does seem the commonality here is stabbed in their room or uh, assaulted in their room and incredibly violent and disinhibited against others being present. You know, the, the difference in the weapon is interesting, even though the, 
the means to the end that the crime feels the same to me. So that could be one of those, those differences that is still linked. I also think if we're going to take this at face value and something like the severe damage to the arm, is that indicative of this sort of overkill? Or is it somebody that is evolving? Were they trying to dismember the body at this point? You know, all consideration, this is all conjecture. We're looking over 100 years back. But this is what I want people to start thinking about, not just the hard facts, the tangible stuff that we can say, okay, we'll put a pin in this and this and this is the same. But what else could be going on here now that we're on victim number three? Yeah, because it makes me start thinking like, copycat crimes have been around for a very long time, you know, and maybe this was someone, you know, but like you said, it could be an evolution, or it could be someone is like, I need to take out this person, I've been pissed at them a long time. This is a great field, there's already been two murders, I'll be able to blend in with the other person. Yeah, yeah, it's a scary thought. So on August 30th, 1885, Rebecca Ramey is a cook, and she was attacked But the killer actually doesn't kill her. He or they, whomever, ends up focusing on her 11-year-old daughter this time, Mary Ramey. So this is different, right? We've had other people bear witness or be in the room, yet they're not the focal point. It's always the adult female. But here, poor little Mary Ramey, she was dragged outside, raped. And listen to this this order, dragged outside, raped, then beaten in the head, and a metal spike was driven into her ear. So she actually survived before succumbing to her injuries in this case. And so if we have information from her as a dying declaration or from her mother, Rebecca, who was witness to this, we kind of now know the order that at least this perpetrator might be acting in dragging the person outside the sexual assault happens and then the the murder even if initially they are maybe knocked unconscious or sort of bludgeoned a bit in the bed injured in the bed somehow this one really gets the community up in arms this is an 11 year old girl it leads to intense fear in the black community um but all of the community starts to really rally because There is a call for leadership to be doing more. The police, they don't feel that the police are doing their jobs. And there starts some rallying of vigilante groups because this is now the fourth one and it's it's a young girl. So people are upset. And I could see it being more of also the Black community saying, what is going on to our women and our girls, and why is this not being taken seriously? But this is when you start to see more news coverage, um, and it 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 really ramping up into people being fearful, and and especially in the community that's being targeted at this point. It's very interesting to me too. Like I said in the intro about Austin at the time, there were some very primitive buildings, and there also as the train came through. The, the quality of the buildings became more impressive and complex. But it makes me think even at this at this point with just one through four of the victims, the perpetrator knew where they were. They knew the location of the room, right? Now, I, it could have been a completely easy assumption, like maybe they're living in two-room cabins, 
and the servants are sleeping in the corner or something. I mean, it could be that. But otherwise, if it was something like one of our first sort of Victorian homes in that area or Adobe structures, like how does this person know where to go? And also if Rebecca's daughter is dragged out, she's got to be screaming, even though she's been attacked, you know, or you would assume that she's, uh, is no one coming to the aid? Like what's, what's happening here? Yeah, there's, there's a lot about this one that you know, gets my wheels turning, especially the the sexual assaults against her being, you know, likely prepubescent. Is that just, you know, what I refer to as that equal opportunity offender, that very antisocial and and probably psychopathic perpetrator in this case where, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean pedophilia or sexual interest in children. He's just locked on and focused on whomever is the person that he's gonna get fixated on. Yeah, I mean, I would start with the assumption that there's just a lot of rage, like ton of rage, unless there's some motive of I'm going to show some person or some entity that I'm in charge, I want to instill fear. But there's just this rage, you know, even wanting to instill fear comes from a place of rage, you know, internally and on a very primitive level. I, I, I'm really like honing in on that instilling fear piece that you just mentioned, because if he's doing the same thing again, maybe this is part of the evolution, like, okay, you know what? Mm, There's a child here. I'm going to target that person. And that's really going to get the community. Let me take it up to another level. Yeah. 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 So our, our next attack is on two victims. So this is, Number five and number six, if you guys are keeping count, this is Grace Vance. She is 20 years old and she lives with her husband, Orange Washington, who's 25. And they live with the family of a local attorney whom they work for. And in this case, Grace actually awakens to someone standing over her. She screams, which wakes her husband up. And he tries to come to her aid, but is knocked out so hard and so brutally that his skull is really badly damaged, which eventually leads to his death. The offender then attacks two other servants who are living in this servant quarters where Grace and Orange are staying. He attacks them with an axe. He sexually assaults them. And then he gets Grace and drags her outside and uses a large brick to bludgeon her. So we have a different weapon this time, but he bludgeons her. She is also sexually assaulted. And the axe that he used to attack the other servants with, they they did not die. Just Grace and her husband ended up dying. He leaves that inside the quarters. Now get this, one of, one of the, the servants that survived the attack said that when they found Grace's body, she was clutching a gold watch that didn't belong to anyone living at the house. And she also said that the lone man that did the attack told her, don't look at me while he was perpetrating the attack against her. So we have more witnesses and more information this time. What do you think? Uh, Again, just I'm getting like a lot of anger And now I'm starting to think it's someone who feels that they are not able to have the position that these victims have. These victims, you know, what do you mean by that? 
Well, if you're a servant, but you're working for a prestigious family, that is some social status for you. I'm not saying it's the greatest social status, but it is indicative of like you, you have a certain level of status. Now, if it was within the same racial background, could it be someone who feels that these are traitors to the race or that they have something that they have something that he deserves or she deserves that they don't have? I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. I have no, nothing to back this up. <laughs> But well, you're again, def- you're definitely working. You're definitely working with your psychology hat and looking at motive. Right. Um, what about behavior is just jumps out to you on this again, one. another head, head injuries, you know, just pounding the head, yeah. which is just very rageful and primitive. You know, what we talk about in, in, you know, the most recent years about the, the intimate cra- crimes of like stabbing and bludgeoning which are different from shooting someone from a distance. Like you have to be up close and personally, you have to be able to, to tolerate the blood spray and the violence and the sounds. I mean, it's, it's quite visceral. And also mm-hmm. this guy's like, I would say he would, I mean, I don't think any amphetamines existed at the time, but the guy's got a lot of energy during this. Look at all this energy, unless it's like a, you know, maybe he's fortified by alcohol to some extent. There's a lot well, that goes on in one, this particular example you're talking about. There's a lot, which to me, this one took a lot of time. So yes. he incapacitated the husband. So the man is sort of like out of the picture and then sexually assaults two other women and then perpetrates the assault and the murder on grace so this is definitely feeling very comfortable so that's what that behavior spending so much time and sexually assaulting multiple people in one is is pretty darn unusual you know that that's i I mean if you just biologically if you're looking at somebody being sexually aroused and perpetrating that type of violence on three different victims. I don't even know what to make of that, but that's incredibly rare. Yeah. And once again, a lot of the facts are clouded in history. We don't know. Did somebody run off? Did Were people screaming? Did he knock the other victims out so that they couldn't scream? I mean, these are not huge towns. Like the, the houses, you, there's not ambient noise that's going to block a scream at this oh. time in history you know, sound travels, you would have been woken by that. But well, I don't know if we'll know any of that unless there's more historical records that come forward. Right. The The one thing that really frustrates me about this is that we don't have a, a perpetrator description. And that's is not uh, victim blaming by any means, because clearly these survivors were were traumatized. But you know, there were there were words spoken, there were more adult eyes on this person. And there's still not a description that at least made it into anything official like a police report or a newspaper. Okay, so we're down to our last two. And the tide definitely changes in a couple of ways here. So both of these murders happen on the same night, December 24th, Christmas Eve of 1885. And both attacks are on white women living in homes with their husbands and families. So first off, we have Susan Hancock. She was 45 years old, mother of two daughters, wife of Moses Hancock, who was a 
very prosperous carpenter in Austin. The reports say that friends described her as one of the most refined ladies in Austin. Mm -hmm. So this was somebody who was known, who was very well liked in the area. And Christmas Eve, the, the family spends some time together. And then their two teenage daughters go out for a Christmas Eve party elsewhere. And she and her husband, you know, enjoy a, a nightcap by the fireplace. And they then turn in for the evening in their respective bedrooms. So they actually have separate bedrooms, which is a little bit different in this case as well. The husband reported that he awoke to a noise. He goes to her room to check it out and sees that her bed is empty. The sheets are all sort of piled up on the bed and the window is open and there is blood on the windowsill. So he goes out to the backyard, sees his wife laying in a pool of blood. She's still alive. And he sees a shadowy figure running away so close that he picks up a brick and tries to throw it at the assailant. And a neighbor kind of hears the commotion, comes out, and the guy's gone in the night. But the neighbor helps him pick up his wife, and they move her into the parlor, into the house, before the doctors and the police are called. So here we have another witness. I know what you all are thinking. The husband <laughs> did it. <laughs> it's a little but easy he, have, there. You know, like it, so the, the big... The big change in the racial profile of the victim seems very significant. But once again, is the is the perpetrator evolving? Right. So her injuries are really, they consist of two gaping wounds, again, to the head, likely the result of axe blows. And so one is across her cheekbone and the other is sort of between her left eye and her ear. So deep that it's it's down to her brain. Her That side of her head is pretty much sunken in. Her right ear has been punctured by some sort of rod. So that harkens back to our 11-year-old victim, Mary. Doctors tried. They could not save her. And they did end up finding the axe. The axe was, it did belong to the family. The husband said that he, it was his and that he kept it on his wood pile outside, which was not uncommon. And as in this case, uh, after some time had passed and in some of the other cases, her husband was arrested. Now, after a lot of these boyfriends, husbands were arrested, but none of it ever stuck. Nobody. There was never was... any. There was never any evidence to convict them, right? Right. Right. So, look, so, that would be an easy thing to set up. Like, if you wanted to off your wife, and you've got all this data about, oh, the last victim had a rod pushed in her ear. You know that. Could certainly be done. I will say the commonality of something else that is uh, a factor that is emerging for me is the amount of preparation you have to put into swinging an axe in order for it to actually crack a mm. skull. Like, so it's not like you're doing, and I'm here, I'm, I'm like with my arm, I'm doing like a 45 degree slice as opposed to you've got to like rear back. Right. So there's a sure. lot of physical work in all of these. And an axe, if I'm not mistaken, is one with the longer handle and then a hatchet would be like a smaller one. Is that right? Yeah. So it, it's definitely an axe and not a hatchet. 
Because if it's an axe, well, remember, this is almost like talking about, uh, you know, the owl. The suppo- I was going to say Lizzie, Lizzie Borden. Remember with the, oh God, was it Peterson? The owl? Yes. Okay. So remember that with like the blow poker, if that was the supposed weapon, they made a point of like, well, you have to be able to rear back. It can't scrape the roof or the ceiling. You've got to be able to have enough room to actually, mm-hmm. you know, follow through with that motion. The same thing would be here. So what what are you saying with pointing this out that it has to be a man skilled in using an axe? It has to be someone skilled in using it. And there's also got to be strength. And you've also got at least the person going in needs to know, do I have enough room to actually take the swing, right? Because if it's a if one of the homes is a of a Victorian style would be which would be completely inappropriate for Austin. But it's all that a lot of settlers knew how to build. You know, they didn't, weren't really building for the climate. But Victorian houses had higher ceilings, which would allow the, the, the hot air to rise. So that worked to advantage. If they were in a, a log cabin with a low ceiling, how is somebody going to rear back with a full range of a, of a long axe? But once okay. again, we're just conjecture. We don't know if it was a long axe or something like a, a large hatchet. It could be anything. Yes. Sorry, no forensic photos of the weapons left behind on this one. (laughs) So this, as you can imagine, you know, with the doctors being called, this is Christmas Eve. The night watchmen are called and they're... Oh, that's terrible. You know, taking their their carriages and their horses and they're riding over there, sort of Paul Revere style, like someone's been attacked at the Hancock house, like that sort of thing, and all going over there. And then it happens again within an hour or so where now it's there's a report of another woman being attacked in the same way so eula phillips she was the 17 year old wife of jimmy phillips who jimmy was the son of a very successful austin architect and a home builder and Eula was described as one of the most beautiful, stylish women in town. She goes to bed with her husband. They are in the same bed. They share a room and their 18-month-old son is in between them in the bed. Her husband reports being knocked out. He does have a gash above his ear to show this. And the son is untouched, thank goodness. But he gets up. The baby is crying. The mother Jimmy's mother runs into the room and there's an axe at the bottom of the bed and they find Eula laying outside in the backyard and her face is basically split in two by an axe. So probably done inside the room and then dragged out unless the perpetrator decided to toss the axe back in the room after he did it outside. Interestingly, her nightgown is all bunched up and around her neck. I don't have information if she was sexually assaulted, but the reports say that it almost seemed like that was what the perpetrator used to drag her out of the the home and across the yard. Um, And then there was blood on the fence rail leading away from the house. Just sort of like in the last one, like this guy jumps over the rail and is gone into the night. I wanted to read a little quote here from Skip Hollenworth's book about this because I thought this was like, here's the last the last murder and we're definitely seeing, well, not definitely, um, you know, conjecture there, but this could be some ritualistic signature behavior. Quote, three small pieces of firewood had been placed almost ceremoniously on Eula's body, two across the breast 
and one across her stomach. Her arms had been outstretched. It was as if she had been posed to look like a figure in a crucifixion scene. So we have a very interesting crime scene here. Um, yeah. Before I kind of tell a little bit more about this story, anything, well, what's popping out to you? I mean, I'm sure well, something. With this being the last one, looking at all of them, now I'm starting to wonder. I mean, I'm I'm always, of course, being drawn back to the psych issues. And I'm wondering if there was like some kind of psychosis involved, if we're going to assume that the killer is the same person for each one, then is there some psychotic process that is actually going on? Is this person being ordered or driven to by auditory hallucinations to target these specific women in this specific way? Because like we know with serial killers or any killer that engages in ritualistic behaviors generally i mean there might be some that are being ironic or like in their own psychopathic way they're being think they're being funny you know we're like i'm going to get known for this this is going to be my signature this doesn't really seem like this was what was operating for this perpetrator but it does really feel strongly to me that there's another element of motivation that is not just about instilling fear. This person's being told to do something and it's got a specific reason. And this last one has now developed religiosity. Is this supposed to be a crucifix? Is this supposed to represent a cross, a sacrifice, a martyr, something like that? Okay. So Put a pin in that because I think one of the theories touches on that a bit and I didn't know where it came from. And I think it's fitting kind of nicely with what you're saying. So Eula's husband gets arrested in this case as well. There was actually a trial. It, it was huge. Reporters from all over the country come out to cover it since it's a very prominent family. In the trial, they drag her through the mud. <laughs> uh, great, you know, this this victim. But they were talking about the fact that there was rumor that she was either having a series of affairs or she was actually possibly working as a sex worker because she would hang out at the local brothel, actually one of the well-known ones, quite a bit was seen there with her friend who was a black madam of this brothel. You know, it's part of part of the prosecution in which they're trying to establish motive for this husband. But with that, they're dragging poor Eula's reputation through the mud. So of course, and then the way they drag her is to disparage this, you know, a white woman who would dare go and hang out not only with people that were engage in these immoral activities, but a person of color. Yeah. It's like they're literally trying to create just like this monster of a woman that brought it on herself. Right. Right. And, and you know, keep in mind she's only 17 years old too. So anyway, he actually does get convicted. It there really was a lot of pressure from the community and especially now with the community really hitting home that, oh my gosh, there's two white women that are now attacked. The The volume of the call for justice really gets louder. Right. Um, so he gets convicted. There is that race disparity issue there, but he ends up getting acquitted on appeal about a year later. There's It, it didn't hold water. There, there really wasn't anything there. So as a follow-up to all of these, there are a lot of arrests made. Like I said, the husbands in these cases, boyfriends, Known street criminals, many black men were rounded up and brought in. There was a lot of violence used to try and get confessions out of them. They were even threatened with lynching if they did not confess to some of these murders. Wow. It was really, really awful, the accounts of 
how much pressure was on law enforcement at the time and how they decided to handle that. So they just placed um, that coercion onto their uh, the members of the community just to try yes. and wrap it up. Not yes. caring about it's like the it's like the mayor of the town in Jaws. Like let's yep. just, you know, yeah, it's all it's it's all it's all taken care of. Don't have to worry. Um and then after the last two victims of course, you know, they're again, they're murdered on the same night, which is very jarring and jarring and frightening to the the community. And because they were white, the police department starts deputize, deputizing people that night, like Christmas night. They are they're taking severe action. They're deputizing individuals. They are having people roam the streets to look for anything suspicious. They're ordering saloons to close down at midnight. Basically, they there was a big theory that there's this was sort of a gang of assassins. And that came from the previous spring before these murders started, there had been a gang of criminals that were doing basically like home invasion robberies. So they thought maybe this was a gang of individuals working in concert together. And they thought, you know what, they're probably planning their evil deeds at saloons. So we need to put a curfew on saloons. But it it gained so much attention throughout the country that the US Marshals showed up to assist. They took, you know, there was there was a marshal or a deputized person on every corner shortly after this Christmas Eve, these incidents. Families were just you can imagine it terrified, you know, they're blocking their front doors with furniture. The husbands are walking around and pacing all night, holding watch with their, their rifles at their side. The police ended up bringing in a total of 400 suspects and never were able to hold anyone accountable, but crazy. It is, it is. And, you know, I, I get real night stalker vibes from this. If you look at it, a few things with being brazen enough to break into homes where they're attacking women in the middle of the night with husbands being present at the short period of time in which it happened, which is just elevating the the fear. And then the community really, you know, at some point feeling like, well, we have to take back what's ours. Right. We are, we're not being protected here. Just something as, as I was kind of you know, putting this all together made me really harken back to that. But let's take a look at what, now that we have all these, what are things that that you and I would list as behavioral that are similar that we're seeing in at least the majority of these? Uh, Okay. So definitely at night. Yep. Right. Perpetrated at night, uh, waiting till people are asleep and dragging people out of the window or Mm -hmm. attempting to drag them outside. What else? Yeah. You know, I thought at first I was like, is this important that they're choosing women that are cohabitating with someone else? But then to me, I thought, hmm, that's actually one of those commonalities that I probably have to throw out the window because for that time, most women were probably not living alone. I mean, I can't imagine right. if they weren't living their own families or their husbands or children or what have you. So I think that was something that popped up to me, but I have to toss out as something that was probably okay. just par for the course of the time. There's sexual assaults happening. Yes. That's definitely quite behavioral. Um, it, with other people there, they're incapacitating the biggest threats, the men, not necessarily the children, you know, except for the attack on little Mary, the other attacks that happened with children in the room, they were 
pretty much left alone. Um, I'd say overkill too. It seems like just overkill on yeah. the wounds to the head of the victims. Why right. do you have to do that as well? Right. Yeah. The, the weapon and the, the is spike really- and the, the spike to the ear. Clearly that's really over the top. Yeah. Yeah. The weapons really interesting to me. Um, you know, some of them are weapons of opportunity. They may all be weapons of opportunity, but it's definitely, you know, it's, it's only an ax or a knife. I don't know about the rods, if those were brought with them or not, but I can definitely see this as a preference towards an ax or hatchet, whatever we want to say it is. And if there wasn't one easily accessible, then the knives are something that is probably not something they're bringing with them to the crime scene. One, they're just leaving them afterwards and there's multiples. (laughs) So I doubt this person is going into the local general store to buy ax after ax after ax because that would be a little suspect. Right. But it also, that's just, everybody has an ax because that's a survival tool at that period of time. You don't always necessarily bring it in. You leave the ax out on the wood pile. So if he's using the owner's ax, he basically has to walk into the yard, yank it off the stump, and he's ready to go. Right, exactly. So needs driving the behavior, you know, this kind of fits more into motive, perhaps. We, I think with the sexual assaults, it's very easy to talk about power and control. You also had a little bit of uh, insight into, you know, is there some psychosis going on here? Anything else you want to add to needs? I I love your hypothesis about, you know, where's the rage coming from? Is that jealousy about the positions they're able to get or something about the the sort of class system? Yeah, I mean, I I remember reading one of the theories. I didn't want to read too much because we were going to do this interactive version. And I do know that one of the suspects is described as Asian Pacific. And I, you know, I was wondering, and I don't know enough about the history to know if there was enmity between African Americans and and Asian populations at that time. Would that have represented something? But it just also, even if it does, it doesn't seem like it would be enough unless it had a driver of psychopathy or psychosis. Sure, sure. Well, so given all this, what do you think, Dr. Scott? I mean, do you think all eight of these are linked? Are they the same perpetrator? I don't, I can't say for sure. I would say it'd be easy to say that they are, but it just makes, the thing that doesn't make sense to me is the leap from black victims to white victims. Unless that's an evolutionary process. That's just evolution two in one night, you know, what was going on? Um, Why not just do it once and kind of see what the reaction is going to be? Unless they're completely, you know, unless they're driven by driven by psychosis, you know, they're getting directive commands to harm others from whatever internal auditory experience they're having, which is possible. That is very, very rare, but it is possible. So what are the theories? Yes. Well, so this is the South. There was conjecture about whether or not this was clan activity when it first started. And there were more than one and the victims were all black. There's There was also the idea that I talked about of it being maybe multiple offenders and sort of a, right. a gang of offenders. And this was really a, a, a leading theory, working theory with law enforcement. And I think it speaks to... The fact that it was just so incomprehensible that it could be one person 
doing this. I mean, obviously we didn't have the term serial killer or anything like that, but to think, oh, this must be a gang of people, which I guess contextually, I mean, yeah, you had gangs of outlaws going and doing crimes kind of makes sense that that's where their, their head would be at. Yeah. It doesn't really fit with it though. I mean, it doesn't fit with why wouldn't there be more witnesses of multiple people running away or, I mean, I mean, anything is possible. Like we're, of course we're looking through this particular lens, but I'm more, I'm, I'm still more driven towards not sure if all are perpetrated by the same person, but the perpetrator of the majority of them is someone who's driven by psychosis and has like, you know, unbelievable energy and, and strength to push these through. Now, that being said, I've seen, you know, 75 year old women having a psychotic episode and they're breaking furniture right and left. So that is possible as well. Well, so a a theory that I did hear was that this was someone where their motive, and this kind of ties into the religiosity that you were talking about, is that they were very upset that these women were sinning in some way they had some sort of sinful lifestyle so they're living out of wedlock with men perhaps hanging out at a brothel is something that a stylish young lady should not be doing so you know this could supersede the race issue yeah especially if you know there's some psychosis involved in there but if there is some sort of motivation of having to you know cleanse the town of these sinful women right a lot of them a lot of the victims could fall into that yeah that's there's also yeah yeah you mentioned this suspect right and people are like wait what do you mean there hasn't been really any suspects they rounded up all these people and and nothing ever stuck but i think it's fun to kind of <laughs> go with this theory that maybe jack the ripper committed these crimes and i'll tell you why and this suspect that fits in there so really ever rumored the best sort of person or suspect that fit the mold here was a Malaysian cook and his name was Maurice. And he spent a lot of his life cooking on ships, but then he managed to land a job at a hotel in Austin in 1885. So a lot of the deaths occurred within a radius of this hotel. And You know, if anyone knows anything a little bit about geographic profiling, usually we're looking at the person's place of residence or where they work and kind of going from there. But he left his job in January of 1886. And if you remember, the last two happened Christmas Eve of 1885. So about a month afterwards, no one ever heard from Maurice again. And supposedly, now again, this is like a huge supposedly, so please don't lock me in on this, people. But uh, after leaving Austin in 1886, Maurice gets a job as a cook on a ship again and ends up in London. And he lived there during Jack the Ripper's murder spree. And just as quickly as the servant girl murders came to an end, the Ripper killings came to an end only a few weeks after Maurice purportedly left London. So there's not much evidence that links these two together, but people wonder if Jack the Ripper and the servant girl murderer were one and the same and often look to this this cook, Maurice, which is interesting. You know what you it's were saying. It's interesting, but I'm not buying it. I think it's just a... 
I think it's just a, a like a coincidence of timing, but yeah, because the sure. the Ripper the Ripper murders were so different, they were like now if we were to say he was a cook, was he also a butcher that would have had the clinical expertise to eviscerate the women and remove their organs the way he did? Was that what he was evolving to as he was taking his long voyage across the ocean? I don't know, but it's a it's a bit much. <laughs> long voyage across the ocean. <laughs> Yes, yes. And the same as like that fantastical tale, people have always said like, well, I mean, maybe this is H.H. H. Holmes. It was six years before his whole deal in Chicago. Yeah, but H.H. H. Holmes was always motivated by money. Like it was all about robbing people with no history. Like there's always a, he was always, a, you know, he was a psychopathic con man. So yeah, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think there is enough here if we take it at face value and, you know, we're not saying that this white husband made it up just to kill his wife or there was a copycat at face value. Uh, I, I think it's one person. I think there's enough to link most of these. The one outlier, I would say, and I it, and it's really just because we don't have enough information on it would be Irene Cross. So she was the third victim who was stabbed in her bed. Right. And, and, and I have, just because I think she's the only one that we don't know if she was dragged outside or not. The, the dragging outside is just like the hallmark for me. So it is for me too, because it's, it's not strategically planning on your own defense and your own escape. I mean, it is on your own escaping. I guess it could be, we could say that the person is like, I want to be out in the open to do what I'm going to do so I can run away and I don't have to get caught in the house. But there seems to be something else. Like I have to do this and I have to show God that I'm doing this because he told me to take these wanton women. Something along those lines. Yeah. yeah, very, very well could be. But that that is definitely the hallmark for me that I'm seeing here behaviorally. And and that's what today was for, just to to focus purely on behavior and crime scenes to get those wheels turning of whether or not we can link these all together. So and I think there's also a walking tour version of this in Austin for anybody who's hearing this on going to crime. Oh Con. no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you will have heard this after crime con. So oh, make right. your way back at some point. You know, that is the biggest regret I have when I went to London is that I did not do the Jack the Ripper walking tour. Well, it's not going anywhere. So next time we go, we'll do it. All right. Well, anything else, Dr. Scott, anything you want to? No, I'm glad you had a great time in the past in <laughs> CrimeCon. And I'm very sad I was not able to go with you, but Vegas, baby, next we'll have year. Vegas, and hopefully everybody will come yes. visit us in Vegas. That'd be great. Well, We'll make it a whole road trip and everything. Yeah. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for this. This is a fascinating case. And this was fun uh, having, you know, conjecture through the, the veil of history. That was fun. Yes, we can do that. That's when we allow ourselves to actually do that. So, right. All right, Scott. Well, everyone, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Take care. Bye, folks. Bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each
each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.